Darren here, and this is something like a prologue before the show starts. I had some technical challenges with this one. I did an interview with three people at my dining room table. So first time I've actually been face to face as opposed to doing a virtual setup or just me speaking as I am into the microphone all by myself. Today's episode is about fleeing Iraq to avoid dying at the hands of ISIS. It's the story of Omar. I am one of his sponsors to help support him in his transition to living in Canada. And I interviewed two other guests who I will introduce once you get into it. But just know that because I wasn't sure how to use my microphone properly and I realized I had to incorrectly set up... The sound quality isn't as good as what you're used to. You'll hear a lot of distance, um, even though everybody's sitting at the table. And there's a, a, some distracting sounds here and there. They're not too distracting. So I just ask your understanding that you may have to turn the volume up a little bit more. But the story is very moving and very powerful. And I just finished uh, listening to it. And it gets a little emotional at the end because... Well, you'll hear why. Imagine, imagine having to flee your home country for your life and then having your life on hold for almost six years before you can finally live as a free person. All right, enjoy today's show. Welcome to the Living Out Podcast. I'm your host, Darren Steele, and today is a very special episode of Living Out Leadership. I have three guests in my home today. I'll be speaking with Omar, Ron, and Michael. Introductions coming shortly. Now, on the podcast, I talk about everything from LGBTQ rights and issues and equality, social justice mixed with personal growth. So let's get right into it. First of all, I want to welcome Omar, who is one week in Canada, a fresh off the plane refugee. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And Michael Falia. (laughs) A little bit of a blurb there. I I, I left you hanging there thinking I was going to say some more. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) And Ron Walker. Good morning. Good. I'm going to go through proper introductions for each of you in just a moment. But let's get into the introduction. What is this podcast about today? Imagine for a moment that you're living in a country where if you were found out to be gay by ISIS, you could be thrown off the tallest building in the city while your family and loved ones were forced to watch. And this is the story of Omar today and two of the people who have been part of a very long process to bring him safely to Canada. And as part of Omar's application process for Rainbow Refugee to apply for uh, citizenship or refugee status in Canada, Omar wrote, My name is Omar. I'm from Iraq and I'm gay. I left my family in Iraq and fled to Turkey in July 2014 to avoid dying at the hands of ISIS. Now, last year, one of my closest friends, Ron Walker, asked if I would be one of Omar's sponsors for him to come to Canada as a refugee. And with the help of Rainbow Refugee, which is an organization based out of Vancouver, and again, we'll uh, fill you in about what that organization does. Ron suggested that in my work as a gay coach, I could be an invaluable resource for Omar to begin his journey as a gay man in a place where he can actually pursue his true identity to live freely out as a gay man. Now, Omar finally arrived in Canada exactly a week to go today on May 7th, 2019. And as I make this introduction, um, it would seem like this was a quick and easy progress process while everybody is sitting here at the table, but that is unfortunately the furthest thing from the truth. This past weekend on Saturday, Omar celebrated his 31st birthday, right? Yes. 31? Yes. (laughs) And many of the people who were involved in Instrumental in getting him here were here in Toronto to celebrate. Now, one of those people who I introduced is Michael Fela, who has made it one of his missions in life, and you've got quite a few, to help gay men and other LGBTQ people safely escape countries like Iraq from persecution for being gay. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to bring each of the guests 
into the conversation to take us through this entire journey from start to finish. But first, I'd like to start with Michael so he can give us some background on, on the politics and, and how he first started getting involved in this work. So, Michael, a, a brief background about who you are, what you do, and then what brought you into this work in helping refugees get safely out of the country where they were being persecuted. Thank you, Darren. I'm Michael Fela, and uh, I live in Seattle. And for many years, I've done a lot of refugee work. I started out helping uh, people from the killing fields of Cambodia get resettled to the United States. After that, we had a wave of Ethiopian refugees, and I was very involved with the Ethiopian community when they arrived and helping them get adjusted to the U.S. And then the next group that started to arrive were the Somalians, very wonderful, interesting community, and became a very large community in Seattle, And but they brought a lot of their prejudices that they had at home against each other uh, with them, and uh, so I got very involved in the fractious community of, the, of, of Somalis in Seattle, and started a radio show, and was working really hard to try to get everybody in that community together, and help them kind of uh, uh, adapt to a new life in a new, new, new country. And, uh, and then at one point in time, I realized that they were killing gay people in various parts of the world. And of course, I'm gay. And uh, I'm going, oh my gosh, these are my people. And I've been working all these years to help all of these other refugees, but I need to start helping uh, you know, gay people get out. And so uh, I began, uh, I met some refugees who were gay in Seattle. Basically, they had friends who were in difficult situations sometimes, and they'd contact me and say, gosh, you know, uh, what can we do to help? And we started, I started to begin a process of strategy to get them out. Sometimes that strategy would involve uh, where one of these people was in their country, and they, their life was very actively threatened, and uh, we'd have to get them into hiding first. And then after hiding, we'd have to get them into a third country, out where they would be safe. Sometimes they would be in that country illegally. And then I would start working with the uh, UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, to get them their uh, paperwork uh, or get them accepted for refugee status with the UNHCR. And then after that, most of the people that I worked with, we got into Seattle. Um, I had a case uh, maybe about six years ago where the UNHCR rejected this one uh, Iraqi whose life was threatened and we had to get him out. And, and uh, his name was Betu Alami, and if you have seen the movie Out of Iraq, his story and the story of his partner, Nayak Betu, is in the movie Out of Iraq, which is a documentary that they made about this wonderful couple. And in Betu's case, he was rejected by the UNHCR. He was uh, uh, recommended for exclusion. And so I was looking for an alternative for him, and I found Rainbow Refugee up in Canada, up in Vancouver, and I connected with them. I went up and met with them. I got some of my friends in Canada uh, in Vancouver to agree to sponsor uh, Betu, and the nice thing was that Canada didn't require uh, UNHCR uh, acceptance. Mm -hmm. Canada doesn't require that. Uh, uh, it helps if you have your uh, UNHCR uh, documentation, but it doesn't require that. And so I worked with Rainbow Refugee, which is a wonderful organization in Vancouver, all volunteer-driven, and they help many, many people uh, to safety in Canada. And, uh, and also United Church here in Toronto, which is a, another wonderful organization that helps so many refugees. I mean, Canada has it going on very, very well. Canada is so, such a wonderful country and, and, and so inviting to LGBTQ refugees. In fact, Canada, I don't think, even has any sort of uh, a quota 
um, bringing in refugees because they realize that uh, uh, that LGBTQ refugees are some of the most um, uh, have some of the most dangerous situations, and uh, and it's true, you know. It, Having worked with lots of different refugees over the years, what's unique about LGBTQ refugees is, is that they're pretty much alone. They, they, they sometimes are fleeing their families. Their families are sometimes the ones who are the persecutors. They, there's, in some countries, you have honor killings that happen uh, where members of family want to kill their their, their, their son or daughter to protect the shame of the family. And uh, so uh, the refugee experience of an LGBTQ person is unique in the sense that it's a lonelier experience. They come by they, themselves, they come to a new country, and, and sometimes they are afraid to even connect with the community that they come from. Uh, like if they're from Iraq or Libya or whatever, they may avoid other Libyans or other Iraqis uh, in their city because they don't want to uh, bring on the wrath of, of, of family discovery or, or how that's going to affect their family back home. So anyway, I got involved and, and, and started uh, uh, helping many different people uh, come to Seattle and then when Trump administration came into power, I switched my focus because I couldn't get anybody else into Canada, into, into the U.S. anymore, and I looked to Canada, and Canada has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, Rainbow Refugee has been extremely helpful along with United Church, and in Omar's case, uh, there was a friend of Omar's who contacted me uh, and had heard about me, and uh, so I contacted and so we talked about it, and I said, yeah, I think we can help, and uh, we need a sponsor. And then, wow, up comes Ron, and Ron was just so wonderful and, and uh, helpful with, you know, saying, yes, yeah, so I'll we'll do whatever it takes to, to get Omar here. And, uh, and uh, so that Ron being the sponsor uh, made it possible for us to get Omar to Toronto, and it took us, I, how many months, uh, I would say probably a little over a year, maybe maybe 14 months, 15 yeah, months, 15 months. Uh, to, once we got the paperwork in to get Omar here today, and I'm, it takes a village to yeah. do this, there's many people involved, mm -hmm. and, and many cogs, and I'm just one small cog in the machine of many people that have worked real hard to, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to get Omar here, and we're just excited and, and happy that Omar is here, safe, and we can now watch him live a new life, and because it is like a, a new life, it's like being reborn. Yep. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a time to reinvent yourself and, uh, uh, and live proudly and, and happily as uh, uh, a gay person without fear of persecution. Amazing. I think this is going to possibly become a tear fest if we're not careful. <laughs> There's, uh, thank you, Michael. There's a couple of really important points there you mentioned, and especially like the, the loneliness aspect, the, the need for support. Um, I hadn't actually thought about, and thank you for touching on it, like you coming to this country and perhaps almost being fearful of A, either coming out or B, commingling with other people of your own nationality for, for fear of them perhaps passing off that information to your family if you've come to this country as a refugee and not officially come out to anyone else. And that support is so multi-layered, and that's why next I want to go and speak with Ron before we give Omar the floor, so to speak. And from the beginning, Ron, tell us about how you first met Omar and the story of your, your friendship and ongoing support um, pr maybe up to about that point where you were connected with Michael and, and we'll sure. get more into that whole uh, re rainbow refugee process and getting here. Well, while um, Michael's right, it's been about a 14 or 15 month process from getting the paperwork in from the Canadian side. Uh, um, our, our journey to get Omar here began 
back in 2013 when he and I first met, and, and we actually met on Scruff. Uh, Omar reached out to me and we began chatting and, uh, and then began communicating through Skype and became quite good friends. Uh, that, however, was in the time when ISIS was rapidly expanding its area and uh, had, was, had captured large amounts of Iraq and was marching south towards Baghdad and it looked like, in fact, uh, they were going to take probably the whole country. Um, I became quite fearful for Omar. And, uh, Omar lived with his family and um, you know, I was trying to convince him that he had to leave, that he, his life would be in danger. And, um, so we began a process to, um, to try to get him out of the country. The hardest part, I think, was convincing him that you know, he might have to leave his family. Um, I'm a lawyer by training, and over the years I've done a lot of work uh, with with people not in the Middle Eastern area, but in Latin America. Uh, so I'm, I'm familiar with sort of some of these processes. And my concern was, and, and many people were of course just fleeing given the troubles there. Uh, my concern though was to have Omar leave in a way where he could go somewhere else legally and not fear being deported back to Iraq again. Um, the UNHCR uh, that, that Michael mentions, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, was established in the years after the Second World War when there were so many displaced people. And it, it became the UN process for managing the, the flow of, of people. Um, it, there's a treaty that lays out in international law what who is a refugee and what their rights are if, if a nation, and most of the nations of the world, and Canada and the US are signatories to it, it defines what their obligations are. And basically, if, if you are somebody who fears for your life, um, or, or, or just is in fear of persecution because of your race, your nationality, um, uh, sexual orientation, uh, even... Um, even just being a member perhaps of a political organization, if you have a legitimate, well-founded fear of persecution, you are, you are entitled to flee to another country and seek asylum. Um, and then each, each of the countries that is signed have put in place their own mechanisms for determining whether you're a legitimate refugee or not, whether in fact you have a well-founded fear or whether you're just somebody who unfortunately, because of the conflict in the area, has to flee, but that doesn't necessarily make you a refugee. Um, again, the, the, the international process requires that if you have that kind of fear and that's why you're fleeing, you have to make a claim for asylum and say you're a refugee in the first safe place that you come to. Hmm. And so um, in, in, in Omar's case, trying to get him to, to flee, I, I knew that he had to flee to somewhere safe, but make the claim in that place. The UN recognizing, the UNHCR recognizing that situation there had established an office in Ankara. And so my, my job was to try to convince Omar that he had to get to Ankara and make the claim there. Um, and, 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 he, and he did. He ultimately fled and, and got to Ankara and, and made the claim. Uh, and it then began, became a six-year process to try to get him out of mm. Turkey to somewhere else, anywhere else, and we can talk about that, but that, that's been the, the substantial part of the period of time, the next six years, was then, now that he has a legitimate claim to be a refugee, how do you, how do you get him here? Um, the process, the international process, and the situation is so grim in Turkey because there are so many, literally millions of people who have fled, um, that when he arrived in January 2014 at, in, at the UNHCR in Turkey to claim refugee status, they issued him a piece of paper that said, thank you very much. It was January 14th, 2014, and, or 20th, 2014, and um, it, it says, you know, we have your claim to be a refugee. You're not determined at that point to be a refugee. You're just, you just made the claim. And he said, we will next, right on the first piece of paper, we will next meet with you to consider whether you actually are a refugee in 2020. 
So, you know, they're literally telling him he has to live for six years in a foreign country. He's not a legal immigrant to Turkey at that point. He's just somebody who's fled. And you have to support yourself. You're not entitled to work legally. Um, they tell you where to live. Uh, and again, for their own reasons, they're, they're putting people who've claimed appropriate in small towns, not in the big centers, the big cities. You have to report to the police regularly. You can't travel without permission. And, and, and without, while you're doing all of that, the, the UN is grinding through the process of trying to hold hearings and decide, do an investigation of you and decide ultimately, are you in fact a refugee? And here we are, 2019. Thank goodness that you aren't waiting for that meeting to find out if you no, actually okay. have a claim. So that was a, an amazingly detailed, and a, that helps understand, for, at least for me, understand more of how that entire UNHCR uh, system works. Thank you, Ron. So Omar, yes. I'm not sure where to start with you. Let's, let's start with the beginning. Like I, I only maybe met you, uh, well... A little bit online, but then we've had a couple of conversations on Skype now before you coming here just to sort of look at what you're going to do, what have you got to get set up and and jobs and what do you want to do and what have you done in the past. But what was it like when you had the, when you finally made the decision, okay, yes, I have to leave Iraq and I'm going to go. Let's, let's start there and then finally getting yourself settled in Turkey. No, well... It was 2014. I was working in a a little distant place from from my play from home. So it was uh, it was kind of and it was getting scary because the ISIS was were they were taking most of Iraq and they were marching through Baghdad and um, yes, uh, hearing on Facebook or any social media that, you know, when they, you know, what, what, what they do to gay people was like throw them off the roof and tallest roof and uh, from tallest building and make everybody, everybody watch. And that alone really killed my spirit to be there to actually, so I, yeah, I considered actually taking everybody's advice to actually leave the country and uh, I finally did. Uh, it was Turkey. It was the nearest and easiest place to be was Turkey. Uh, at, that, at that time, the visa was the really easy, um, kind of cheap, and I did. I left, I, left, uh, I left with my sister and my brother-in-law mm-hmm. at that time. Yes, and when we applied to the NCR really didn't know how to actually come out to them or say anything so I didn't for you know because my sister and my brother-in-law were there mm-hmm. and <clears throat> yeah and they uh, my and my sister and my brother-in-law they didn't really uh, they stayed for like uh, less than eight months maybe they saw that it's it's a long process so they decided to go back and they tried to convince me to go with them but I didn't I told them I don't, I don't have any future there, and and they don't know I'm gay. Nobody in my family know I'm gay, <clears throat> so I told them no. I'm staying here. I want to see this through. Mm-hmm. I never want to go back to Iraq. I, I have to say that at all the points in this process, uh, you know, it, it, obviously this is Omar's life, and he has to make the decisions. But you can hear how difficult some of them are. Yeah. And, and we're talking throughout this process. And he's made it sound like getting out of Iraq was actually relatively easy. But I can tell you that wow. um, there were several days there when there's a highway that runs north-south. And if you tried to get out to Turkey that way, going through the highway, of course, ISIS had captured much of that. And you couldn't do yeah, it. Yeah, so that was... And, the- and then there's the airport in Baghdad. But it was under attack mm-hmm. and closed. And so... You know, as, as somebody who's trying to help him get out, you're wondering how do you, how do you do that? And and no Omar had to cope with that and get out, which blessedly he did. Well, I had to. I was. Uh, it's not. It's not a play. Iraq has never been a place for. There's no game. There's no mercy for gay people. And, and then, I, and as a country, having his problem on its own. So, 
uh, it's never safe to live there uh, as a normal person or a gay person. Mm. So, and, and one thing uh, that I think a lot of people aren't aware of sometimes is that if you're a Canadian or an American, it's very easy for you to get a visa to go to another country. But if you're Iraqi or Syrian or Libyan or, you can't or get some of these places where, uh, where they have very, very high levels of persecution, mm. uh, you can't get a visa, you can't get a tourist visa, you can't get a, a education visa very easy to go to almost any country. So it's, very, it's much more different for these guys. Yeah. It's actually very hard, and over the years, trying to get uh, Omar here, we did try to get, uh, and we had job offers in Germany and Spain, and we uh, tried to get uh, visitors' visas to mm -hmm. the United States, to Canada, and... Um, yeah, they declined right away. They all declined, because they, they did not want to encourage refugees right. just arriving and seeking asylum <coughs> through a normal visa process. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that was all part of the six-year journey was to, to try to get him legally somewhere yeah. safe. And those doors are pretty hard to, to open. So let's go back just a moment. You mentioned, or further back in time before this all started, you mentioned to me on one of our conversations, I think you said you, you saw this word in English, gay. Yes, it and was that was kind beginning. of the opening to you exploring and figuring out who am I, and and for me, I'm interested in that because even though I had my own coming out, like we all did here, at, at least in in North America, there was exposure to it. There was an understanding of that. Yes, gay people existed, but how you grew up and your world was very different. Yes, it was very different. At the first, I mean, I when I find out I get I was gay around like maybe eleven, twelve, thirteen years old, I instantly knew I am different, and not uh, not normal to whatever was going on around me. So slowly, I hit myself and fought it, fought the idea that I'm gay. It's uh, it was difficult, but. I was fighting all the time. I didn't want. I, didn't, I wanted to be normal with, with my you know with my other friends and with my family, but uh, I couldn't do it. It's really the hardest battle I ever, probably I ever fought. And then uh, slowly, I growing up and learning English, I learned the word gay actually means. Mm -hmm. And we had internet then, and this is where my hidden life started. I started I started my second life on the internet where I can be myself. And slowly through it I met an amazing people around the whole world that really accepted who I who I was and and it made me feel welcomed. It made me feel like I met really good friends around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually I met uh, Ron, Tony, uh, there are lots of other people in my life that really made me feel belong and being good to be who I am. And that was mostly where I really started to actually thinking to, I'm, you know, there are places that I can be myself. Mm -hmm. Did you have to start to deal with, because you would have then been, you would have fled around 26 years old? Yes. At that age in Iraq, there probably would have been oh. social pressure. Why aren't you married? Why don't you have a girlfriend? Oh, yeah, around that. Exactly. It started around uh, college, yeah. like when I was 19, 20 years old. It was, you know, in Iraq, the college uh, period is where you actually find you should find a girl and you can marry because it's, it's the only place where you get in contact with the girls that, back then. So, <clears throat> yes. At, after college, I went straight to work and everything, but the pressure was there. It was always there. You know, you're getting older, you have to marry someone. You're getting older, you have to marry someone. And I couldn't live with that because I've never been attracted to any to women. And if, uh, if I'm forced to do that, I will not only uh, <clears throat> be uncomfortable, I will... <clears throat> I will destroy an innocent 
girl's future because I'm I'm not me yeah yes that's one of the reasons yeah that's one more reason that I didn't feel belong there yes so those pressures ISIS taking over the country finally getting into Turkey getting that application that you're going to be interviewed in 2020 to find out if your claim is actually valid. Five years you lived in Turkey. What was that like? What did you do? And how did, how did you manage those most difficult times when you felt, you know, and you would have felt hopeless. You would have felt like, is this ever going to change? Am I ever going to get to live a life that I want to live? Because I, I don't think that Turkey was even as accepting as it could have been, as it, as we would like it to be, to be as an an out gay yeah, man. It wasn't. It was it was a little open for me because it's a it's a little change from Iraq. Like I can I can be me for still be discreet, but I can still meet people and can and actually kind of trust them mm-hmm. because in Iraq I couldn't do that. I never did anything in Iraq. I couldn't trust anybody because it might kind of back to my family and I didn't want that so yeah in Turkey when I went to Turkey uh, it was it was an it was a different world but it was something I had to do I knew uh, after after my sister and my brother-in-law left I knew it's gonna be longer and I had to do it so slowly I adapted myself there and um, I don't know it's still discreet when they when they uh, the UNCR they made me live in a small small city that is not it's very religious and there's no almost no gay life there so I couldn't do anything uh, <clears throat> but by the years I tried I tried to go to to Ankara I tried to go to Istanbul oh after 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 I mean uh, in 2015, uh, Ron came to visit me, actually. Mm-hmm. And that was actually my first experience with the gay world because it, it was in Istanbul. It was a little open. We went, um, you know, we experienced a little gay gay night and gay life. And, we and went to a club. Nice. I know. <laughs> and actually, I actually felt, you know, this is, this is who I am for the first time. Wow. And I loved it. So... Yes, and after that, uh, I went back to my city uh, with the weight and the unknown of the UNHCR. And I worked in uh, a minimum wage, kind of under-the-table kind of work, just to get by. Yes, and I'm so glad that that's over. <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was an emotional crucial. roller coaster for yes. him, I can tell you, because um, while they said, the hearing would be in 2020, at this end, we were working hard, as I say, to try to get him out legally to other, throughout, to other countries and, and also to Canada. And um, so part of that process was moving the UNHCR along if we could and uh, we were successful in getting that hearing moved up uh, by yeah, three we were, years yeah we were sending faxes emails and, uh, you and know, getting politicians here involved and, and the, the, the problem was really trying to marry the UN process with the Canadian process and very early on in this the rules about individual sponsorship to come to Canada if you just want to use the Canadian process were, were a little different than they are now um, we can maybe talk about that later. Uh, now, people who are individual sponsors um, do not have to be uh, economically liable for mm. the individuals. Back in the very beginning of this process, you had to uh, be prepared to do that. Um, uh, but anyway, ultimately, he was declared by the UN to be a, a, a refugee, and that entitled him to then be on their list and go and go to a country that would take him and we had to get the Canadian process then going to to sort of take his file from the UN and get him to Canada. So would this, Michael, would this have been about the time when you were introduced to this situation? Because I think you introduced Rainbow Re- Refugee as an option? Okay. Yes, yes. So, so yes. How, did, how did you get introduced and then how did you meet Ron and 
let's talk, go through some of the beginnings of that process. Well, um, Omar has a friend, Dan, who he also met on Facebook, I believe, and they had been communicating for a while. And uh, and Dan and uh, Tony, Tony and, Marshall, uh, Marshall, yeah, and uh, been... and Ron had all been trying to figure out different ways to get Omar to a safe, stable place, and uh, and. I think, uh, as Dan explained, that there was something that happened. There was some rejection that happened somehow or other, and everybody, I, mean, I don't know if it was a rejection, and some sort of visa that everybody was trying to get for you. And, yeah, to the U.S. at that point. And everybody was depressed, and oh. Dan posted something on Facebook to his friends about it, and one of his friends knew me, and so he said, well, why don't you call Michael Fela and because Michael Fela has has successfully been involved in helping uh, resettle people from for quite a while, and so Dan called me. I never knew of Dan or talked to him before, and I, he told me a little bit, and I said, "Yeah, I think we can do it." And uh, just uh, like that, just like that, it was like four years behind, and then we finally met a guy who was like, "Yes, we can do it. It's we can we can easily do that." Just. That that opens a lot of doors for us, and you know, and I, I said it takes a village, and and uh, it did. Uh, so at that uh, point in time, I was actively working on uh, probably about ten or twelve cases uh, that I was trying to you know get out of difficult situations and, and to Canada or to the U.S. or some, or even South Africa, I've gotten people to. And, uh, uh, and so I, uh, I have, there's a young woman named Jacqueline who, you know, uh, who contacted me at one point in time. She heard about me and she contacted me. She says, she says, I heard about the work that you do and uh, I don't have, uh, I don't have any money. I don't. I, I can't really sponsor somebody. I'm living in England right now as a, as a school teacher. Uh, but is is there anything that I can do to help? And I said yes, please. Just just if you can just call these guys on a regular basis because there's so many of them and I'm a busy guy. I can't keep track of everybody every day and all their problems that they're having in their in their different countries. Keep keep contact with them and. Uh, uh, and let me know if they're having problems, if I can help with anything while they're, you know, in their third country. And so then Jacqueline she did. She was came amazing. into the scene and she started calling yes. Omar and they developed a relationship over the phone. And, and, uh, uh, and so anyway, that, the process all started. It's always a group effort mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and it's a beautiful effort once everybody's engaged. What, uh, I'll just make the interjection. The movie out of Iraq that you were featured in, uh, for anyone that hasn't seen it, I, I just watched it over the weekend, and uh, you know, be prepared for tears at the end. But it's it really helps exp- helps you to see this process. So the beginning is the, the love story of these these two men, but then exactly how long it takes the separation between the parties and living illegally or sort of under the table and then this this village and there's some interesting scenes where you go over there and how you're helping uh, Beto prepare for that final interview and and just the complex how complicated a process it is how much preparation is required and you know validating someone's Existence, in a sense, because if they get sent back, that their 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 mortality is really very much in question. So, Ron, bring us into like to this point where we finally get those last few steps along the path before we finally got that. Yes, Omar can come to Canada. So, so the the Canadian process is um, one where you have. organizations like the United Church in this case, and there are other of them that are called uh, sponsorship agreement holders, and the government has recognized that there are organizations that um, they know they can rely upon to ensure that the people who are being brought in, that's being done right, and that the people are going to be cared for, and uh, there'll be a process in place to help try and help them thrive in, in Canada. They, um, well, they're uh, responsible sort of on a, a direct level with the, the the government, 
there are organizations like Rainbow Refugee that are very much a hands-on group uh, working with the individual people coming. And then uh, they require as well um, as many as you can get, but certainly five individual sponsors whose, whose job it is not to economically uh, support the individual, although you can do that if you want, but, but rather to make sure once they're here, they're going to um, get into the community and, and do the things that they need to do, like ensure that they have appropriate health care and that um, they've applied for all the right paperwork that they need to live here, that they learn their way around the city, that they're connected with organizations that can help them uh, you know, in in Omar's case, he was fluent in English, but a lot of people come here in, in these kinds of circumstances and they're not. They need to learn English. And so the individual sponsors, uh, it's their job to try to make sure that this all unfolds and that the person who's coming has the best opportunity to thrive and shine. Um, as you said off the top, um, uh, you know, with my friendship with Omar, it was easy for me to say, of course, um, I'll gather together as many people as we need to to make sure he thrives here. And you were kind enough to be one of the first uh, to agree when when I asked you to jump, jumped at the chance. And so uh, I know I certainly greatly appreciate it. And that and that's why I say it is really you know Michael's perfectly right. It's a village here that gets all of this done, and everybody has to do their piece. Uh, people who are listening and want to get involved, you know, Rainbow Refugee is obviously a great uh, a great way to do it. Um, I should just touch on the economic aspect of it is it, um, there does have to be money raised and a budget done for the, the people who are coming. If it's an individual or a family, you know, they do need to live and, and uh, that money does need to be raised. And that's where organizations like the United Church and others are can be instrumental in helping make sure that the funds are there and they have to be put on deposit. Um, so that the person can draw on them if needed once they come to Canada, so they're not economically um, abandoned, as it were. But mm-hmm. but that but the individual sponsors aren't responsible for for that money. It's in the hands of um, the sponsorship agreement holder, and it's parcelled out as needed to the to the individuals. I'd, I'd like to also mention that there, that Rainbow uh, Refugee is a wonderful organization. They are based in. Vancouver, uh, you have a couple of other, few other uh, constituent group organizations that uh, that are like Rainbow Refugee. There's uh, Rainbow Railroad, uh, which is here in Toronto, and then there is also Capital uh, Refugee, which is in Ottawa, and they're all wonderful organizations. Uh, and Metropolitan Church uh, has both a sponsorship holder. Uh, agreement with the Canadian government, and they also are a constituent group. So uh, that is another wonderful uh, place for people to go to. Um, so yeah, and we need anybody who wants to help. Whether you're, you know, whether you're, uh, you want to just help, maybe just calling and, and keeping these guys, you know, in good spirits, or or maybe helping get them educated or prepared for some sort of job that they might be able to take when they are waiting in Turkey or Lebanon or Egypt or wherever they're, they're stuck. Uh, that kind of help is, is, is welcome as well. People who want to donate money, that type of help is welcome as well. And my gosh, we need so many sponsors. I have such a backlog of guys in, and also lesbians and, and lots of trans people uh, who I'm desperately looking for sponsors for, uh, so I can get them here as well. We will, or I will, in the show notes, make sure that all the appropriate uh, organizations are, are, are hyperlinked, so you can check them out, as well as any contact details for for people that are interested in helping out in any way, shape, or form, as as Ron and Michael have described. So, Omar, you've you're still in Turkey. You've had that last interview, I guess probably with the Canadian consulate and, yeah. and and they how long did they tell you that they they thought it would take before it would they would take give you an answer? four to six months that depending was, on the depending on the case and it was much shorter than that oh yeah it was it was less than probably like like a month or something so the day you found out uh, paint a picture uh, and what happened <laughs> 
What was uh, it like? Yeah. Uh, for, uh, well, I was I was at work and uh, I had a text message saying to be at this hotel at. May 4th. And that wasn't a hookup. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but yeah, and then right after that came a phone call that saying, let's talk about your flight to Canada. And I wow. blacked out like after that. <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah, and then, and then I told him to repeat what he said again because I didn't believe it at first and then he did uh, <clears throat> he told me your flight is on May 7th uh, bring two bags and stuff uh, you know details about uh, luggage and other stuff and yes uh, and after that I was I I <laughs> yes <clears throat> sorry that's okay yeah, and uh, the first thing I started was like, oh, <laughs> I must be dreaming. But yes, I did that. I did have that phone call. And then I immediately tried to call one by one, even if they sleep, even if they're sleeping or they're not. I didn't care. I just wanted to, t- to let them know. And yeah, I started with my mother, uh, which she was really happy about it. I told her. <clears throat> I got it, and yes, yeah, she made uh, uh, she made like you know the the cheering sound and yeah <laughs> the halhula something. Oh, nice. uh, yes, yes, and then I started calling uh, uh, the rest of my family, which are <clears throat> Ron, Tony, Dan, Marshall, and Michael. Oh my God. And I was on the, I remember I was on the second floor of the, my, of the workplace. It's, it's a restaurant, so I was on the second floor, and it was, thank God it was empty. So I was, like, jumping and skipping <laughs> around, talking, talking, every, yeah, Tony was laughing, Michael was, Michael was so excited, Dan, Ron. It was, it was a really great day. I remember it was the best day ever in Turkey. Because wow. right there, I was there. I told my, I told the whole staff at the restaurant. I was like, "Yes, I'm leaving finally." <laughs> um, yes, so it was. It was a really. It was a really, really good day. Yeah. That was about a month before, or were they, they told you it was three weeks out or something. Uh, they yes. No, it was. Yeah, they they called me around. Uh, I remember they called me around March. 27 or something. The okay. end of March. Yeah, okay. the end of March. Yeah. So it was about five, six weeks. Yeah. yeah. To say that he'd be coming, but we didn't have flight details. We didn't actually know the day. Uh, they, they just, yeah, they just said May 7th. May 7th. We didn't know what yeah. that meant yeah. uh, until later in the process. You, you, I, know, I you, th- you don't usually get flight details until about yeah. less than a week yeah. before. I, I think I remember getting an all caps message from you. <laughs> 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 something to that extent. No. And then, in the last week before you left, you were saying your goodbyes and your 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 mother and your sister and who my else? mother and sister came to visit me. Yeah, they decided yeah. to come visit me in Ankara. It had been five years since you'd seen them. Oh, my mother. I think for my with my mother, it was like three years because okay. she came visit. She came to my city actually uh, a while back in two thousand something. I can't remember. Uh, so yeah, but my sister, but uh, it was five years with my sister. So yeah. yes, it was really intense. And the, at the airport, uh, started really hugging and crying actually. But and then we went to our relatives. We went to we, we went to and stayed with our relatives in Ankara, which is really nice. We spent a week together in Ankara, which I really loved. And, yeah, they sent me. They sent me off, and I love that. And I hopefully in the future I can go back to Iraq and visit the rest of my family, yeah. like my brother, my other sister, younger sister, and their their whole kids. They're all married and have kids, and that yeah. I didn't see yet. Oh, so and you'll be able to do that as a Canadian citizen. I know. Exactly. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, well, we'll bring things to, to a wrap here. Michael, perhaps from you, any 
final words. You've done this process so many times and you've already described you've got 10 or 12 people. And I know this evening you're actually mm-hmm. heading off to uh, Toronto International Pearson Airport to meet somebody who's who's coming in. Any words of wisdom or advice and what's what's next for you in this work you're doing? Well, I think that uh, I think that this is all part of changing the world. You know, we get these guys here who are being persecuted and they find safety and uh, uh, and then they be- become comfortable with who they are and uh, they sometimes end up reaching back into their communities back home. And, and I'm seeing this process happen at this point in time. I'm seeing it happen just like it happened for us when we were young. You know, you change the world one person at a time. And, uh, and so these young people, lesbians, gay men, uh, many trans people, uh, the persecution that they go through is just unbelievable. And the, uh, sometimes, sometimes it's just the horror of it is, is just when you learn about what some of these folks have gone through, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's unbelievable to, and, and hard to listen to. But we are changing things back in the Middle East. It's going slowly, just like it uh, went slowly here. But uh, we certainly hope that uh, uh, that this is all. This is a big part of the process of of, of making those changes. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Wonderful. Do you? Do and you we need and we need more sponsors. We need more sponsors. <laughs> well, from what I've seen and what I've heard, um, you're a force in your own right, and I know. Ron, Michael, you're both not individuals that want or are looking for individual recognition, but I think it's important to recognize that, you know, you do what you can do with the skills that you have, and you're both bringing such such value to this process, and I'm in admiration of both of you, and, and, and Ron, as a, we, you know, we've been friends for Good grief. A long time. A long time. (laughs) And I know you are exactly that kind of person. You don't seek the credit, but you've done a lot of work and in 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 helping Omar and in and being there is also just this friendship the two of you have developed. So you mentioned Rainbow Refugee. Any final thoughts from your words or how can people help here in Canada? Sure. And and Michael's quite right. There are all sorts of organizations. Um the Rainbow Refugee, as a constituent group, needs sponsors, and we can use as many as you can get. Rainbow Railroad, which is based here in Toronto, I've done work with as well. Um, and as Michael has said, many people are in really dire circumstances, particularly now in the trans world, and, and their lives are in imminent danger where they are, and they have to get out of there. And Rainbow Railroad works very hard in those situations to help those people get out of there. And, it's, and, and getting out of there sometimes is not about sponsorship or getting them into a, a sort of a visa or legally coming to a country path. It's physically just getting them out of that country to somewhere where they're not in imminent danger of death. And Rainbow Railroad works very hard in that area. So they're, there's a, they're a group, um, uh, the, the group in Ottawa, uh, Capital, um, uh, you know, as another organization, most communities in any major city in this country have uh, organizations that are doing this kind of work. Um, and uh, so they, those organizations can use the help. The other thing that people can do if they're interested is uh, if you go to your community, particularly in the gay community services place, like the 519 in Toronto, um, they will be able to put you in touch with individuals in the community who may need your help. Just, you know, uh, helping them get accustomed to the city, helping them if, 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 they're, if they're families or the, they're elderly, they may need other services. Uh, so you can, you can do that. Uh, you know, you can, if you want to help, there's something you can do no matter what it is. And, and it doesn't have to be money. And I urge everybody to do what they can because it does, it's, it's one step at a time and one person at a time and we can make a difference. Yeah. 
And what's important to recognize, and Michael, you were saying earlier when you sort of had to refocus your efforts to perhaps bringing more people into Canada. I mean, we're not adverse to the rise of populism and to anti-refugee and anti-immigrant status with some of the politicians that we now have. And it's really important to me that I be one of the voices that brings this roundtable together to show why this is so important, why we can bring someone like Omar into Canada, why we are doing work to bring in more individuals that are persecuted. And the benefit to the country overall, but the friendships that have been developed here, I mean, if it takes one person, then that one person becomes two, becomes a community, and that's how we're going to change hearts and minds. And that's why I wanted to share Omar's story, because it's a reminder of the freedoms and the liberties that we have right now in Canada and in, in still in parts of North America, including the United States, a little bit more precarious there. And with you know pride in Toronto coming up, we, we forget. We sometimes take this for granted. We sometimes get upset that it's corporate and it's maybe not as grassroots, but we have it. And Omar wasn't able to ever celebrate pride in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if that and when that will ever happen. And, he, you know, he fled his home where his life was endangered only to end up in another country in Turkey where he still couldn't live completely freely. And he risked the very real possibility of serious physical harm or death if it became known that he was gay. And the beautiful thing is that he's free It's been exactly seven days, and he's now here in Toronto. Omar, ending with you. I went to the airport with everyone who greeted you. We were waiting, and we were waiting, and we were waiting, and we were waiting. (laughs) I think I was the first one that saw you come out the door, and then, there's Omar. And I had only met you recently, but the the, the pool of tears in the background. What was it like? Wow, well, to find to actually finally meet everybody was something else entirely. I, I, I met Ron back in 2015. I met Michael earlier earlier last year, and, but it was it was really overwhelming that I'm still actually processing. Mm-hmm. I mean. <clears throat> Uh, seeing my seeing them uh, I mean not seeing not not seeing them finally through my phone or because I used to like FaceTime I FaceTime them all the time it's it's entirely different but amazing and I loved every bit of it and I'm for for that I'm forever grateful thank you for getting me here and I know I'm probably I'm <clears throat> I'm so I'm not just I'm it's not it's not just me who's who needs help. There's a lot more going really worse than me. Yeah. And for that I'm really really thankful. And I really hope not to lay you all down. I'll make you I'll make you all proud. Well, you already have. <laughs> I I heard yesterday you were on your second or your third job interview. Second. Yeah. And it went okay. And if yeah. things go well, I'll start Monday. That's amazing. I know. And that's what part of this entire process is about, right? It's this engagement immediately with the support and the community and the fostering of helping the person acclimate and, and to start a new life. Yes. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> Omar, hopes and dreams. The next few months, maybe a year from now, what... Is it too early? Are you just taking it all in? Or do you, do you have a vision for where you want to be, what you want to do? Oh, no vision yet. But uh, uh, the fact of being free is exhilarating and really overwhelming. But uh, I had such an amazing group around me that really was helping me selling in. So... And of course, hopefully, Darren, hopefully. you as a life coach, I, yes. and, and one of his sponsors, I'm sure, we can count on you to help yes, him absolutely. move in the right direction. <laughs> no agenda, just taking one day at a time. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful, and I want to thank all of you for taking the time to be here with me this morning. This is a really important 
moment to recognize and celebrate. Um, on the 24th of May, I'm taking Omar to the Inspire, the ninth annual Inspire Awards, which you know celebrates individuals, uh, communities, and organizations that uh, help or work for the LGBT community in the greater Toronto area. I think what a what a a nice additional thing for us to do for you to it'll be the first time for me at these awards but to be able to celebrate lgbtq diversity and lives and have you there and that you'll be able to have your first pride here in toronto I know, there's lots of first i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> lots of, i've never done i've never done lots of things before so i'm really exploring it now and i'm loving it it's amazing well, I'm so delighted that you're finally here, and, and thank you all for, for being here on the thank show. You. Thank you. Our pleasure. All right. As always, thank you for listening, and this has been a very special moment to live out and, and live proud. Please take note of all the show notes and, and how you can participate, or at least find out more how you can help, how you could become a sponsor, or how, as Michael said, you can just reach out and help someone recognize that they have a friend to support them in this journey um, out of a country where they've been persecuted into a life where they can actually be free and, and live who they are authentically.